The Medically Supervised Injecting Room, or EMSA for short, is a program of North Richmond Community Health. And the facilities remained open throughout the COVID-19 pandemic as an essential health service for people who inject drugs. The staff have worked with a single goal, to make sure that no one's left behind. Primarily, this meant that the EMSA could remain open and it could continue to save lives while reducing the pressure off the Victorian public health and hospital system. The EMSA supported clients to understand the health risks of COVID-19 and they provided them with face masks, uh, free testing and later on immunisation and vaccine certificates. And this was to ensure that people who inject drugs had access to the same care as the rest of the Victorian community. My name's Mia, I'll be your host. But before we go any further, it's worth pointing out that this episode will discuss injecting drug use in detail, which may impact some of our listeners. Support is available through Direct Line, the Alcohol and Drug Counselling and Referral Service. The phone number is 1800 888 236. All right, let's do it. Hi, I'm Nico Clark. I'm the Medical Director of the Medically Supervised Injecting Room. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm the harm reduction team leader at the Medically Supervised Injecting Rooms. And that's overseeing the harm reduction practitioner team and ensuring the day-to-day running of the service occurs. It's been a while since the pandemic started and obviously people really kind of, when it first um, came about, people were confused by what it turned, what it could be, what how it implicate their work. Uh, so the question is, what was the most important thing for the EMSA clients to understand? For us, it was really important that the information was evidence-based and it was clear to understand. Um, and that was pretty difficult because the information was either new or changing quite quickly or we just didn't know enough about the virus. So it was important for it to be calm, calmly presented information and reducing the hysteria around it so people Mm. would actually listen and really um, reassure people um, during a time of real uncertainty. And that was particularly difficult because as the staff members ourselves, we were also going through those same feelings. So really trying not to uh, promote how we might be feeling, but making sure everything was calm and reassuring whilst giving them information as we knew it. And early on, many people weren't really aware that it was happening. Mm -hmm. They didn't watch TV, they didn't read the newspapers or listen to the news. And we had a few conversations with people and they're like, what are you talking about? What what (laughs) pandemic? You know, and then we'd have to kind of sit down and explain things to people and because they just hadn't heard about it at all, really. Mm -hmm. And um, did you set up any programs to meet some of the challenges to make sure that no one was left behind? We uh, were concerned uh, initially that that, um, this could adversely affect the population of people who were using the injecting room, that they may... They may um, they may struggle because they didn't have anywhere to live, and um, and they may struggle to isolate if they were required to isolate. Then they may struggle to to be able to to um, continue to live their normal existence. We 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 anticipated that many people may struggle to to maintain their. Um, 
their, their pattern of their regular behavior in this kind of changing environment. And so we, we kind of uh, offered people a range of uh, supports to, to uh, if they wanted to pharmacotherapy to enable them to stop using heroin. Typically, we kind of tried to make that available. Um, or if they wanted to stop smoking, initially we weren't sure how what impact the smoking would have, and many of our clients smoke, so we were offering uh, nicotine replacement therapy for for everybody. Uh, but the really the main thing that that we offered early on was to link people into the housing support services. The government stepped in and made a lot of accommodation available in hotels and that were otherwise empty. And we worked closely with Launch Housing to kind of find a lot of people temporary accommodation in those services. That was a real game changer, I think, for a lot of clients as well, because I think there was um, an added bonus to that, which I hadn't thought about, that by putting everyone in accommodation, suddenly other aspects of their life could improve. So I remember one client coming in and uh, usually had really, uh, his visits were quite difficult and I remember he came into accommodation so first of all his visits lessened a bit but secondly he talked about the amazingness of being able to have a shower whenever he wanted Mm. and consequently as a result of him being housed we saw really positive behavior change from him and I just thought well you know there's added bonuses to to housing people through this crisis. I guess one of the other things we had was the remaining connected uh, Telstra project Mm. where the department funded um, a grant and we were able to purchase phones with uh, prepaid data plans Mm. and we were able to allocate those to people to remain connected should they suddenly have to quarantine or just even that a lot of their normal services had to close down where they would get free Wi-Fi or remain connected to other people. And so the idea of these phones was that they could continue to do that despite these other um, these other services closing down. Um, and of course, the, the, the rules were always changing and um, you have masks and then you don't have masks, you've got density limits. Um, lockdowns, not lockdowns. How did you manage that and communicate those new rules to the clients? I think it's fair to say rapid change that changes from one day to the next is extremely frustrating for any individual. Mm. Um, and for our clients, that would have been incredibly difficult. Um, I think for us, it was about the way we approach people for mm. that. So it's about, again, compassionate, friendly, supportive, calm. Giving explanations as to why we were doing things was really important, particularly if people were in the space to listen to those. Mm. And talking to people about the change in a way that wasn't um, downgrading them or doing it in a way that would cause embarrassment or shame, but continuing to reinforce those rules and explain the importance of them, I think, was really, really key there. Mm -hmm. I was also quite anxious that we would be able to have the necessary masks and other protective equipment to make sure that there was no transmission within the service. Uh, I'd been following the, the impact of uh, safe injecting rooms in other countries of the, the pandemic and some of them had shut down because they hadn't been able to source the, the adequate uh, PPE that they were needed to maintain a safe service. So, and so we, we even purchased some ourselves uh, 
to, to ensure that we had that supply initially. And some of the local community offered to make masks also for our clients, which was really lovely. And somebody donated some uh, in the mail. We received a bunch of masks that people had made for our clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had a bit of success with limiting the transmission. Um, were there any other kind of um, changes that were made to make it COVID safe? We had to make a lot of changes to make it a, a safe place for our staff and, our, and the clients um, from limiting the, the number of people who could be in the facility or in any room at any one time, from measures to kind of uh, increase the distance between people where possible to a, a safer distance to the the masks and other protective equipment that people were wearing um, to uh, ventilation and air filtration devices, the kind of uh, other the san- sanitizer. We'd always been struggling to get people to wash their hands before mm-hmm. the pandemic. So, <laughs> but we were amazed that this kind of really did finally get everybody washing their hands when they came in, which is good technique in any case if you're if you're planning to inject anything. Also, had to uh, kind of um, Im- uh, implement kind of uh, screening for people as they came to the door and the screening questions changed regularly. And and then, of course, the testing so that we would detect early if anybody uh, did have the, the virus. And we, throughout the course of the pandemic, we were able to detect the uh, COVID infections in a number of people. And then to help people isolate when, when they needed to isolate, either mm. because of their symptoms or because they were a close contact of somebody or because they had COVID themselves. Mm-hmm. And then uh, similarly in the staff, kind of regular testing in the staff. And I think, you know, the, the, the overarching aim was to keep the service open and running through this pandemic. And so what we found, I think, was a lot of our clinical and medical aspects of service delivery remained Whereas some of the more, I call it the humanizing elements of the service. So the spaces where we could build up relationship and rapport, the having a cup of tea with a client in aftercare, the giving out of food that was able to be eaten on site, all of that had to be stripped back, which was incredibly difficult because it was some of the spaces, um, some of these things we did allowed for great engagement with mm-hmm. people, which was tricky because we these tools that we'd relied on were then stripped away and, and taken away from us. So staff had to work even harder to either keep relationships going or build relationships with brand new clients who only knew us through a mask and gown. And then things like the management of overdoses became more complicated. Um, yeah, sometimes if somebody has an overdose, we we need to kind of put some air into their lungs and some of the techniques for doing that um, can have a risk of uh, creating aerosols so that if somebody was um, if it was COVID positive, then that would increase the risk oh, of their yeah. transmission. Mm-hmm. So you know, us and also, you know, ambulances and hospitals, we kind of had to introduce different measures for managing people in mm. that circumstance. So for us, that meant we... We changed our overdose management protocol so that we gave a higher dose of naloxone, the opiate antidote to start with, to reduce the need for the risk for us to breathe for them. And in which case, we do it with a bag um, that goes over people's face, uh, like a bag valve mask. Right. And and then we also had to um, uh, uh, put people on a on a map 
on a mat that that's, that slides easily and then move them into a, a room and shut the door so that we wouldn't expose any of the other clients or staff mm. to risks of managing those overdoses. So there was quite a change to our overdose procedure and and we have we have a lot of overdoses. So, you know, we have um, you know, more than a thousand a year on average. So um, that was a big change to our procedures, but that was kind of, you know, worked okay and worked fine. I had the honour of going on a grand tour the other week um, and I was really taken aback by um, the staff's treatment of clients. Um, it was just dignity and um, respect. I mean, you should expect that, but at the same time, I can imagine that's not what you're used to in the community. And I just wanted to um, make a note of that, first of all. I thought that was really pleasing to see. Um, and the other thing that I that stuck in my mind was this: the story you were telling me about the person who um, came into a facility, I don't know if it was yours, um, who just uh, didn't have any heroin but just injected water. Can you tell me about that story? So this was actually a, a story that uh, a client from the Sydney Injecting Room shared with us mm-hmm. uh, just last week. She'd made a little video to say thank you to the, the staff who, who she'd built a relationship with over the years. Uh, and in, in that video, she tells the story of how it meant so much to her, exactly what you said before, that to be treated in a respectful way um, and uh, because her, the rest of her life circumstances were such that that wasn't something that she was experiencing much mm. uh, in the rest of her life and, and that sometimes she would just come in uh, just to experience that and to kind of see the staff there and, yeah, she would pretend to have something to inject and and um, and uh, just injected the water. So... It, it's a real reflection on connection yeah. that the EMSA provides for a lot of our clients. And, you know, this story can be told many times over in a slightly different way. There are so many of our clients that come in and say, you you know, if, if I think about the feedback forms that get completed, it's you guys are angels, you treated me nicely, you treated me like a human being. And I think, gosh, we're a health service. This should be your base expectation <laughs> of us. I understand why Mm. this is a surprise for you, but it shouldn't be. Mm. And that's always a bit difficult that, you know, it it continues to be there's so much stigma and discrimination out there to people who inject drugs. We can offer this this space where that's not felt. Mm -hmm. And for people, that's a real a really enlightening experience often Mm. and important for them to walk out the door feeling okay. And if mm. we can just make someone's day a bit better, we've done a good job. Mm. That, that same client who shared the story of injecting heroin uh, uh, shares another story in which she she says that so much had she been treated in a particular way by by people that that she started to believe that that was the truth about herself and 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 that the way she was treated in the injecting room enabled her to to kind of. Uh, see herself as somebody worthy of respect and to see herself in a positive way and to kind of then have the the kind of the capacity to imagine living the life that she wanted to live mm-hmm. and and she describes that as being a really pivotal moment in her story mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and as Sarah says we've had really many clients who've come in and and just talked about um that 
how, how powerful that is for them. It's, they're not so often concerned about the risks of overdose, but, they, but to be in a space where they, they feel like they're valued as a human being mm. is, is the, the, the thing that's of most value to them of coming to the injecting room. I'd just like to talk a moment about our clients because they are an incredible group of people. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that links everyone that walks through that front door together is the fact that they inject drugs. Mm. These, everyone that walks through the door is a different individual human being with amazing qualities to them. A lot of our folk have suffered major trauma in their life or other disadvantages and setbacks, which have meant that maybe they find it harder to um, uh, navigate the world in normal societal views. And I think it's really important to remember that, you know, everyone that walks through our door is a human being first and foremost. It's an added level of what the MSA does above and beyond supervising your injection and responding to your overdoses. Mm. We are much more than what is said on the packet, if you like. Mm. Mm. I, I, as we spoke, as we're approaching Christmas now, I think one thing that comes to my mind is that every client who walks through the door, it's it's a it's a little bit like a kind of wrapped present, if you like. You, you don't really know. You know there's something special in there, but you don't really know what it is. It might take some time for, that, you know, that... Uh, that person to kind of unwrap themselves a little bit and you know people share with us really these kind of uh, often very intimate and and challenging lives people have had to live and Mm -hmm. the experiences that they've had Uh, and then you know sometimes when I look into either the injecting room or the kind of aftercare area where there's might be a number of uh, clients sitting there and to know some of those stories and what people have experienced and to think that They've still have the trust in in other people to come to a facility like ours, put their trust in us to look after them and to um, and to kind of support them in different ways and to kind of offer them with some of the services that we have on site and that we link in with other people. Um, you know, sometimes I see that I just think, wow, what an amazing thing it is that that this is able to be possible. Mm-hmm. Outside the medically supervised injecting room, I spoke to some clients who were happy to talk to me about what the uh, clinic has meant for them over the last couple of years. Did you have, um, when the pandemic came, uh, was in full swing, were you concerned that you might not be able to access the service? Yes, very much so, because uh, as I said earlier, it's safety. Uh, there's a safe place to do it. and. You don't have to find a bin because it's right there. Everything's there for you. All the essentials, whatever you need, um, syringes, band-aids even, you know. Uh, but the people, they're great. They're, they're there for you at all times, you know. They're not 24 hours, unfortunately, but they're there pretty much all the time. Okay, so I think it's a great facility considering um, how many people had probably passed prior to this without this facility being here. But um, for me, it's just somewhere that I know that um, I can use in a place that's uh, safe and, and that means a lot of different things. It means obviously safe is in terms of you using fresh equipment all the time. You know, it's um, uh, you're, you're monitored and if anything does go awry or whatnot, you know, you've definitely got the support and, and the right medical 
medical, you know, people there to be able to help you or give you an arcane or whatnot. Whereas if you had to use, you know, uh, it takes it off the street a little bit. And yeah, that's sort of what it means to me, I guess. Yeah. Making people realise that it's not a criminal issue, it's an actual health issue and that needs to be addressed. You know, it's long overdue. It should have been addressed a long time ago. Yeah, and uh, the staff here, they try to provide the best service they possibly can and, you know, they support us uh, in um, safe use, but also they support us if we uh, need to speak to a social worker or something um, in regards to, you know, putting out um, ideas on how we can use safely, but also if we're thinking about trying to get off the drugs and that they support us 100%. So, Did they help you out with any housing when you came out of the uh, being incarcerated? Yeah, yes, definitely 100%. Like, um, as I said, I was uh, incarcerated for a long, long time and um, I've uh, been in that revolving door. Uh, once you go through, you sort of get stuck in a revolving door in and out of the system all the time. And uh, the, before uh, the staff here, I was, the longest I've ever been out was for three months and... Now that uh, they've been supporting me, I've got accommodation. It's the first time I've ever had housing and I've been out for nearly two years. So I can't thank the staff enough for the assistance they've given me. Back in the studio with our guests for the second part of our interview. You, you're actually administering COVID vaccines and also testing. What types of questions did the EMSO clients have about the vaccine and the tests and how did the team respond? Well, we had very varied responses to yeah. vaccines. Um, so I suppose in the, initially we had, had access to the AstraZeneca vaccine. We didn't have access to Pfizer and uh, we had some people who were kind of very quick to say, yes, I'll have that. Mm. Uh, some people had already arranged it elsewhere. Um, and, but, you know, there was a lot of resistance in some sectors of our population. And, um, and uh, you know, and we would try and encourage people to have that as much as we can. And we thought if we can convince some people who have kind of some influence over the other people in that population that, that, that we would be able to then, they might then influence some of their colleagues. And uh, I remember having a conversation with one of the local Indigenous elders and he was initially reluctant and, you know, saying it doesn't affect uh, Aboriginal people and, mm. that, you know, it's, he thought about kind of uh, not just the impact on himself but in his community and he agreed to have it and and then he told other people that he'd had the mm -hmm. vaccine and, and uh, that was kind of the start of being able to vaccinate that population. I was actually surprised at how many people were there, you know, with their arm out already saying, jab me, jab me. <laughs> it was almost like sometimes demand felt like it was outweighing supply. Mm -hmm. And 
I think sometimes people dismiss more vulnerable or marginalized populations as either not needing it or not being interested in something. It's a bit like, do you start talking about giving up smoking to someone that's injecting drugs? Well, absolutely you mm. do. Just because they're give, injecting drugs doesn't mean that they don't want to, to make changes to their health. Mm. And by assuming that people don't want to have that conversation, you then actually shut off any Mm. any kind of dialogue so I, I just loved all these people saying I've already got it or yes I'll have it or is the vaccinator in today you know we'd have that so often yeah like many things if we make it easy for people then then they'll uh, take it up and so just having the vaccine on site and saying would you you know how about do we do it now and someone goes yeah okay mm. and and now the vaccination rates in in, in our clients are you know, virtually the same as the rest of the community. Mm. You mentioned um, earlier that you had to explain to people that there is a pandemic. You're never sure whether whether they're having a joke on you or <laughs> whether they're being serious. But you know, the first couple of times I might I'd laughed, and then I realised that they weren't yeah. joking, and they just hadn't heard about it. Mm. And this is often you know kind of one or two months into it. Yeah, and uh, you you realise that the life that that people are living are very different to the life I'm living and they, mm. they don't have, uh, they don't watch TV, listen to the radio, read the newspapers, they don't have those same conversations with people mm. and that, that their access to information is really limited mm. and um, and then to kind of to have that conversation, I imagine how I would feel if I'm, you know, uh, this was both at the injection, but also in my work at the hospital, you're, you're talking to somebody you've never met before and they're telling you that there's a, a global infection that's kind of limited everybody's capacity yeah. to leave the house and uh, how that might feel for them. But it, that was, yes, you could see people's kind of brain kind of processing that. Mm. And, uh, and I think some of those building blocks of work that were probably done in those early days about explaining to someone what this virus was about and when it was having no impact on their lives, probably mm. really helped later on when we went into lockdowns or mask wearing mm. or all these other restrictions that came in, people already had an understanding of the seriousness rather than it, oh, what's going on here? There's this thing I don't understand about and now they're restricting my, my movement or whatever else it was that was going on. And so I think some of those early conversations would have helped our client group get on board early enough to wrap your head around it before it got super serious. Mm. I think that was probably mm. useful. Mm. And we had the newspapers. We've always had newspapers available for people to read to and to kind of help them know what's going on if they don't have access to news elsewhere. It, it might also be worth mentioning that, that um, we have had to support many people to isolate. And uh, isolating if you're kind of... Uh, a daily heroin user is a difficult thing to do. Um, it either means that you're going to go through withdrawal symptoms or you need to kind of have some other access to to uh, opiates for that period of time so that you, you're able to effectively isolate and reduce that risk of transmission. So we would often have to work with people um, to uh, you know, quickly get them access to kind of prescription opioids uh, that that we could deliver to them in a safe way that would help them stay at home for that that period of isolation that they that they needed to mm. undertake 
and then to give people, to support people often to have the basic provisions that they would need to be able to isolate as well. And many people took that as an opportunity to kind of um, uh, look to kind of treatment options so that they that they could uh, um, uh, avoid kind of uh, going into heroin withdrawal. Mm. And so we, we certainly scaled up our... Uh, our efforts in kind of to be able to kind of offer everybody who wanted to stop using heroin the the means of doing that with the various treatments that we had in the injecting room and with our partner organisations. Mm. I think there's probably two other things that you your your responses just brought to mind for me. There was two other things we scaled up. Number one was making sure that people had enough new equipment at home if they were going to um, be more restricted. On, on leaving to collect equipment. And the other one was scaling up on naloxone um, training. So naloxone is the drug that reverses opiate overdose. And we've always trained clients on the administration of it, when to administer and to also provide them with naloxone mm -hmm. to have in, in other settings when they're not in the injecting room. And so that was really important as well, knowing that a lot of people had suddenly gone into... Um, single room hostel accommodation or hotel accommodation or we needing to stay at home for longer periods of time, um, it was really important that they had both these things available to them. Have we talked about COVID tests? You know, when we started to see more infections in our community was the time when we also started to have more COVID testing mm. capability. So we managed to get the on-site Gene Expert PCR machine, which we use for hepatitis testing, uh, also has the capacity for the accurate PCR testing in 60 minutes. We weren't quite sure what the impact would be of those infections at this point. And so um, uh, we'd maintained that for a couple of weeks before we realised that, in fact, uh, the risk of those transmissions from people who weren't face-to-face -face contacts was, 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 was low and that we didn't need to do that anymore. Um, so yeah, it would definitely we we put some onerous requirements on our clients. Um, but that being said, you know something like asking our clients all to wear N95 masks whilst in the building was a game changer for the risk that then exposure had to them. So wearing a mask when you were in the room with someone who was COVID positive versus if you hadn't, very different outcomes. And I think it was. Once I remember clients seeing um, seeing how wearing the mask benefited them long term. Mm. And I remember one client came to me and said, Sarah, I should have listened to you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you kept telling me to pull up my mask and then I had an exposure and I got COVID and I should have listened to you and kept my <laughs> mask on. And I said, well, you just need to remember to listen to me from here on in. <laughs> and he had a little giggle about it. Yeah, so since we've been giving the clients the N95 masks, uh, we haven't had any exposures uh, within the injecting room within the clients. Mm. What would you like the community to know that they might not know or what would you want them to consider when they think about the EMSA facility? Wow, big question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we could have fit it in the next 10 minutes. I would... Uh, Encourage people to kind of have an open mind to who might be using the service, what kind of experiences they might have gone through and what might be taking place in that service and, and our, our experiences that, you know, people come 
um, because they've they've had really challenging life circumstances, often when they were young, and it's an opportunity, you know, in that environment to kind of gradually, kind of um, unpack some of that and kind of start to put themselves back together a little bit. For some people, uh, for other people, just a, a way of being uh, a little bit safer and having a bit of a connection. The, it's also a, a place where a whole range of uh, services that, that, that many of the people who use the facility need and haven't managed to get organised to have access to in the past are, are kind of located on site. It's really a quite of uh, alternatively uh, designed mm. uh, way of providing those services to that population in a way that they kind of... Uh, more likely to be able to take them up and and uh, a lot of things that are taking place in that building um, hepatitis treatment pharma uh, you know opiate pharmacotherapy housing legal support wound care oral health care um, overdose mm. training kind of uh, mental health interventions um, food I think for me if I was talking to community about the injecting room I'd I'd maybe just comment that don't mix harm reduction in with viewpoints about drug use mm. and whether people should or shouldn't take drug use. Mm. The purpose of the EMSA is to meet people where they're at. Uh, and, you know, that old kind of saying that no one as a child says, when I grow up, I want to have dependencies on, on drugs. Yeah. And to remember that, you know, everyone has this their own pathways some are more challenging than the others and for some reason people have ended up at our door we are supporting people where they're at to hopefully um, allow them to be safer but also to make changes as and when they're ready and we're there to support them to mm. do that i don't know i just think um drug consumption rooms uh, injecting rooms more specifically are an absolute crucial part of harm reduction and and should be available um in the right places to the right people mm. because without them you end up with higher levels of death but also other damages caused by problematic drug use mm. Mm. and you know as well as the many um clients i've had the the pleasure to meet through this process of uh, uh working in this injecting room, it, it has also been a privilege to kind of get to know many people in the local community as well, uh, many of whom have had people kind of injecting in the laneways behind their house, uh, some of whom have uh, had relatives die from heroin overdoses, and to hear that they want everybody in their community to be looked after and that it, it, they don't like to think that there's somebody injecting in their laneway who might you know, die overnight. And mm. and so knowing that there's a facility that can provide that support, um, uh, many of the local community members have said to me that that, that makes it uh, for them uh, uh, kind of uh, improves their quality of life and that they, they feel kind of uh, happier that, the, that everybody in their community is being looked after um, no matter what experiences that they've had or whatever challenges that they're facing, mm. um, and so while you know, I think it you know you know some people get anxious about it. 
you know, it's, we, you know, there are certainly many people who kind of really feel that it has improved uh, Richmond as a place for them to live in. Big thank you to my guests, Dr. Nico Clark and Sarah Hiley. And thank you to the EMSA clients who stopped to chat with me. Thank you for chatting with me and um, sharing your views on the EMSA and how you felt about some of the other services that they provide, which most people um, are not aware of. I was surprised and it was good to learn about it. So sending lots of appreciation to all of you. Uh, That's the end of this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Quick note on the songs in the podcast. There was Ripples by Ketza, Illumination by Siddhartha Courses, and Idle Waves by Blue Dot Sessions. And that's all for now. I look forward to seeing you next time. We'll see you then.